just how bad might climate change get? In official models, there is not one answer to this question, but many. Different models tell us what happens at different levels of warming, which range from the mild to the catastrophic. Broadly speaking, over the last few years, official predictions of a key aspect of these models, called climate sensitivity, has moved decisively away from the milder end of the spectrum, but also away from the most extreme upper end, with the most likely level of this parameter settling on moderately high. So climate change is likely to be bad, perhaps very bad, but it's unlikely to kill, say, everyone. But there are other people who argue that these models don't capture the reality of what's really going on, which is to say, ongoing and widespread social collapse. Among these, perhaps the most well-known is Jem Bendel. In 2018, he wrote a paper called Deep Adaptation, which was a huge influence among the activists of Extinction Rebellion. It solidified a new approach to the politics of climate change, one defined by attempting to work through the intense pessimism of climate change politics and to form a new space of political agency and purpose. Bendel is a controversial figure. Scientific critics have accused him of exaggerating the likelihood of our collective doom. Political critics have accused him of instilling a depressive slump in those who would otherwise become climate activists. It's important to note that I'm not a climate scientist, and podcasts aren't good spaces for debating the finer details of scientific modelling. For all their inbuilt small-c conservatism, official bodies like the IPCC remain the best sources of information on climate change. But as a thinker of our possible political future, figures like Bendel, open to and engaged by the problems that climate change throws up, remain, I think, indispensable to the conversation about our planetary future. My name is Richard Hames. In late July, a few days after the hottest week of the last 10,000 years, and by chance, just after the publication of his new book, Breaking Together, a freedom-loving response to collapse, I sat down with Bendel in Berlin to talk about doom, disaster, and solidarity. So hello, Jem Bendel, Professor Bendel. Uh, welcome to Navarre FM. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. So since your very famous paper in 2018, you've become the most prominent figure in an international movement called Deep Adaptation. Could you very briefly, and I'm assuming for about the 10,000th time, explain to me what Deep Adaptation is and what it implies that we have to now do? So yeah, Deep Adaptation was the name of the paper, and then it became a, a thing in itself. That was because perhaps there wasn't, at the time, a, a term or a phrase for people who believed that climate change was going so fast that it would disrupt and ultimately break down modern life, modern societies, and where they wanted to respond to that positively, creatively, compassionately, and rather than just sort of become a sort of a, a gun-toting, bunker-building, baked bean, tin-hoarding uh, prepper. Uh, so deep adaptation is uh, inviting us to think about how can we adapt to a future that's coming, a future that some of us believe is already upon us, uh, where societies are breaking down already. Uh, uh, yeah, to do that in a kind, caring, creative, positive way, rather than just sort of a defensive uh, way. Um, some people therefore then think that we're what they would call doomers, which they then associate with sort of a general apathy. I don't see that at all. Uh, it's a movement of people who want to be their best selves, come what may. 
And Duma there is a description that you're using fairly neutrally. So you're describing someone who has a politics of doom, but you're not necessarily chastising them for that. You're in Berlin um, to talk at a, a, a film screening uh, of a film called Provocatively, although I, I guess accurately, uh, We're All Going to Die um, by Ben Knight. And I was wondering how you see the collective of doomers there. What shared politics do they all have? So some people who uh, believe that we're in an era of the collapse of, of industrial consumer societies choose to call themselves doomers as an easy way of, and a slightly jokey way of referring to themselves. But it's also a term that I think more widely is understood in a negative way, a pejorative way, by the people who then use it to say, oh, people are just selfishly giving up, when actually it's not too late uh, to stop or reverse climate change and ecological destruction. Actually, in my new book, I, in, I suggest we have a new term, um, and I say we should call ourselves doomsters. And it's a little bit ironic, it, but it's it's saying that it's time to be more open, more confident about the way we see things and say, we're not going to hide anymore about how we see the world. We, we, this, is, this view has changed uh, many of us, massively changed our lives. People have quit their jobs to jo go full-time in climate activism or become community leaders and all sorts. And so it's, I think it's time to say, we're doing this because we feel that time is, is, time is running out and we don't want to delay uh, doing what we really want, what we, what we believe in, whether that's, you know, environmental protection or community support. Um, so, yeah, the, the, I invent this term called doomster because I think the word doomer has been too, too, too yeah, it's kind of been established as a bit of a negative, uh, a negative thing. This film I'm here for... It's quite funny. There's a th there's a thing called doomer humor, uh, which I think you know we can all be rather earnest and serious about climate change, and that's understandable. But uh, gallows humor is a capacity that we all we, that, that humans have, and it, it, why not keep it? You know, have a bit of fun as we live our lives in this difficult situation. So yeah, the film is a bit funny, and uh, I I want to support that. So that's why I thought I'd come and speak at the. Um, the showing of the film here. It's now currently late July in 2023. Um, we've just had a Six Sigma event uh, in the Arctic, so an event that is six standard deviations away from the, the norm. We've had a week last week in which every single of the seven hottest days of the last 100,000 years happened in a single week. We've had uh, record-breaking month temperatures and so on. North Atlantic surface temperatures are off the charts. People are having to add new figures on in order to capture the intensity of what's going on. But these are in some ways surface pictures of breakdown. They are um, the distant drivers of it. Um, and so I'm wondering two things. First of all, how would you characterize where we are with the climate? And then as that process of climate breakdown happens, how do you see that reflecting itself in social structure? Or how do you see us getting from undoubtedly extreme events to a process where we where we have something like social breakdown you've summarized it well july 2023 the last three months of climate data have been as you say off the charts uh, and this is this is scary because um it takes a lot more energy to heat up the ocean than heat up the air um I often talk, I talked about it in my deep adaptation paper that about ninety percent of all the excess heat on planet Earth from the 
the greenhouse uh, effect um, influenced by, by humans, that's all gone into the oceans. And at some point, there'll be an equalizing. So is that equalizing now occurring? It seems to a degree, yes. Uh, I think one thing uh, that, that current data demonstrates is that the people who have I'm talking about senior-ranking climatologists who have seem to have um, been quite active in condemning people like me for reaching the conclusions I have. Um, uh, they, you know, that was really kind of unhelpful. Um, so I'll give you an example. Gavin Schmidt, head of the Goddard Institute at NASA, when interviewed about the Deep Adaptation paper, he said, I was wrong in saying that global ambient temperatures had exceeded what the models, the best models, were projecting. Well, actually, at the 2016-2017, when I was looking at those temperatures, they had exceeded just slightly above what the top range of the projections were from the IPCC report in 2014. Um, and in 2023, we're back again to them exceeding past projections. In the interim, we had this uh, period of a, a slight uh, easing of global heating, uh, and there we had, that's because we had a La Nina period, uh, and also we had a, a period of low sunspots. And the climatologists don't they hate talking about sunspots because they think we'll suddenly get distracted from the main problem, yeah. which is the greenhouse effect and how we've altered that uh, through human activity. But there was a period of low sunspot activity as well. And when I learned about that, I was like, oh, good, we've got a few more years before it all goes totally haywire. It looks like it's going totally haywire now. But that's the the thing that I'm worried about is then if, if people don't learn, if journalists and activists and people working in environmental groups don't learn about what drove that reticence in establishment climatology to keep watering down things, then those same sort of processes, which are basically being allied deeply to incumbent power, uh, allied to the establishment, allied to the order of things, that will therefore then lead to new mistakes in terms of how do we respond to this. I see articles in The Guardian and they're quoting all the top climatologists who are currently being proven wrong for what they said over the last five years. They're not turning to the people who actually said, this, what we're experiencing now, is going to happen. And those people that actually thought this was going to happen are the ones who've actually, in their own way, allowed the truth of that to affect them, to, to destabilize them, to disintegrate their old confidence about themselves and society in the future. And people react in all manner of different ways. Some of them go off and become, you know, they ditch their careers and change entirely. And some of the people just choose to stay at their jobs, but with a new spirit, a new desire for truth and courage around these topics. I helped create an initiative called Scholars Warning, and we brought together over 500 scholars from around the world who've signed a public letter in November 2020 saying climate change is progressing so fast it's going to break down societies. We think it's either likely or inevitable already, or already underway, and we think we have to have a much more mature conversation about what that means. It's still in mainstream media entirely taboo to talk like this. You've even now got efforts to try and, I call it mood-splaining. So you've now got uh, Rebecca Solnit and others um, 
basically saying that, no, we need to stay hopeful. So they're telling us how to feel, how we should feel for the good of ourselves and the good of society. And to do that, they have to ignore how so many people have been radicalized in a positive way to become community leaders and all sorts because they actually believe that time is up for modern industrial consumer societies. It is already breaking down because of environmental change. They have to ignore all that. And you wonder why. I think it's the establishment doesn't want us radicalized. It's a very, very fundamental, revolutionary critique of everything in society if we think that modern life is breaking down because of what, how, how we organize society. So it's, it's a scary critique for people who think that we all need to sort of behave. <laughs> um, and I think that's why I, I'm seeing such criticism. So my question was about the you relationship. You asked about yeah. the relationship between what we're seeing in the climate data and and societal breakdown. Yeah, so how do yep. we how do we translate from mm-hmm. these extreme events mm-hmm. and indeed a pattern of extreme events? So you mentioned La Nina, which is this a cooling side of a, a process mostly I understand in the South Pacific over the yeah. water there. And then the flip side of that is El Nino, the boy as opposed to the girl, and that's a warming process which yeah. we're now in the first few months of, but it normally lasts between uh, one and five years, I mm-hmm. think is roughly the, the the time span. And so we've got these extreme events as far as I know, no one's life depends directly, and I use that word very precisely, directly on the amount of ice in the Antarctic. And yet there are all these indirect connections. So can you just trace for us how those indirect connections attach to social structure? Yeah, sure. So the most obvious one, and I talk about it in my book, Breaking Together, is is agriculture, uh, fisheries and food. The huge concern is something called multi-breadbasket failure. So the 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 jet stream in the northern hemisphere has been very weird it basically it loses it loses its strength and just like a river when a river starts losing its strength it starts meandering um and same with the jet stream and so when it's meandering you then get um blocking effects so you'll end up getting long periods of of high pressure and and and, and heat or intense cold and so you get this these, these extremes and you get uh, longer periods of either drought or rain. And the problem is, uh, this idea of multi-breadbasket failure is that we're a civilization that depends on just a, f- a few grains for such a huge amount of our calories. It's about 80% of calories that we have come from just a few grains, either directly what we eat or that is given to livestock. So um, the international market for those grains is dependent on a few regions uh, that are the prime exporters. And the concern is is that they're not going to be isolated weather disruptions to those harvests because they're all related to a very wavy jet stream uh, that's losing its power because of the rapidity of climate change and the diff- how much the arctic how much the poles are warming up compared to the equator and how that therefore reduces the differential of temperature and therefore means makes the jet stream less strong so that that's the key thing because you you don't have to have much more much more than about a ten percent drop in the supplies in in order to then trigger um, spikes in prices of the international grain markets. Now, interestingly, that doesn't mean that suddenly there's not enough food to feed people. 
But we have a system where it's now so controlled by global corporations and so few countries have their own grain reserves that are owned by the state um, that, that the market will accentuate any of these disturbances and translate them into spikes in prices. And we've seen that before. And because of the fear, then governments like India has just banned uh, exports of, of uh, is it wheat? Wheat, yeah. And so... Again, we, we see that in the past when, when governments get worried about what's going to be happening with the reduction of, of, of grains on the international markets. And then, again, that can have implications for the, the, the price of wheat. Um, so, yeah, that's the main... Also, just the warm temperatures means there'll be less oxygen, which means that'll affect fish stocks. So we're going to see some real problems for, for, for fisheries. Um, that's a much, much less important in terms of the, the total amount of, of nutrition for people, but it'll certainly affect diets and it'll affect certain communities more than others. Um, the other ways that these in, in climate changes can affect us are things, well, the, the way that it stresses um, the financial system, uh, the way it stresses the insurance markets. This could be a trigger for some kind of financial collapse and it's a very obviously financial systems are incredibly complex so it's it's a fool's game to try and map out exactly how uh environmental changes will then lead to um an economic or a financial collapse and we're, we're becoming so dependent on a global financial system to be stable even just to go down to the corner shop and buy a loaf of bread and it's ridiculous how 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 something that could be so proximate is now so dependent on hyper-complex global systems beyond our control. But then that takes us on to questions of how we respond. Um, but it's not just climate. There's such a focus on climate. I think if we only focus on climate, we're, we're ignoring like the damage that's being done more generally to the environment and, and how that's feeding through into a, a lower quality of life. The Human Development Index in most countries of the world has been going down since uh, 2016. Um, in rich OECD countries, it had been going up every single year until since um, 1990. And quality of life indicators also show that in 90% of countries, it's been going down since 2016. So this is pre-pandemic, This is and it's global. So we may all blame our own political leaders in whichever country for being idiots, um, but these are global trends in the wrong direction in terms of how we experience life. I wonder if you could talk to a few different examples of social breakdown or processes that look like social breakdown. I'm thinking particularly in the last two or three years, particularly of countries like Lebanon, where a essentially perennial crisis uh, of the constitution of Lebanon as a post-colonial state formed around three different non-majoritarian minorities, so each of which has a kind of pluralistic stake in that society. Or I'm thinking of, for example, Sri Lanka, which underwent something like a social collapse in May of last year, partially triggered by volatility in financial markets, as you are sort of alluding to there. And I wonder if you could pick out a single example from the, the world that you think exemplifies the kind of tendencies of a collapse that has already begun somewhere. So when we talk about societal collapse, it's understandable that uh, for me, I also, when I was writing that deep adaptation paper five years ago, I assumed that collapse was some kind of sudden event it sounds sudden. And I think that is actually unhelpful because societal collapses are always processes and there may be more visible moments in that collapse, but 
it's a process. It's a process of disruption, degradation, uh, ultimate breakdown, which is irrecoverable to back to where it was before. So it's the fact that it's it's a it's a breaking down that's irrecoverable to what's before, which is the definition of a, of a societal collapse. I'm sitting here in Berlin with you, and you know we've had a nice cup of coffee wherever that's come from around the world. The electricity's on. We're recording nicely here. Um, the ATM machines are still working. There's a sense of everything's just going on normally. But I believe this is giving us a false illusion of normality because if you look at the data, what sustains us living this way right now, that is is breaking down. And the causes of that are irre- irrecoverable. They're irretrievable. So the destination is set. So I believe that looking back on now, we will see this as part of this creeping collapse of of industrial consumer life. So yes, I hear that it is it, it it is important to think about well, where has experienced collapse already, because that helps us to think well, what triggered it what we can do about it, how do people respond positively or negatively in those circumstances. It also invites us into a spirit of solidarity with how we can help, say, people in Sri Lanka or Lebanon and elsewhere right now. How we can, in our privileged positions in the West, not contribute to further societal breakdowns and collapses in other places in future. So I, I like the question, but I wanted to preface my answer by saying, well, actually, I actually think we're already in it. This is happening everywhere. But you mentioned Sri Lanka. Part of that collapse also included rather strange policies from the government. Mm, about organic farming. Yeah. Yes. So um, where they suddenly banned fertilizers in a country where smallholding to create food for you, your neighbors, your extended family and your village was crucial. To me, that sounds like a, a very urban, elitist and panicked policy response to a very real problem and a very real opportunity. So the problem is the carbon footprint and the fossil fuel dependence on modern agricultural systems. The opportunity is to find ways to transition off that, and that takes time. So I've become an organic farmer this year, and we have setbacks where bugs will eat the crops, and you have to wait till the pests will come in to then feed off the bugs that ate your crops. And so you, there's risk involved. It takes time. There are setbacks. You need to end up having an ecology in your farm because you can't just obliterate the pests with chemicals. It takes time. You can't... If, you, if, if I was dependent on my farm for feeding me and my kids, <laughs> and suddenly uh, a prime minister said, oh, because I've just come back from Davos and I believe we all need to get onto organic farming, so we're just going to ban it overnight. I, of course there'll be a revolution you're you're facing starvation and and but that doesn't mean we don't need to try and transform agriculture we do and it doesn't mean that we don't need to really prioritize transforming agriculture because at some point in the future global supply chains will not be providing those fertilizers in many parts of the world so this isn't this is an emergency we need to transform agriculture as an emergency but it doesn't come from draconian rules which just produce a backlash and that then combined with the terrible state of the finances in sri lanka uh, I don't know enough about Sri Lanka to know what other, what else went into this. But I think this is an example, you could say, of what the sociologists call elite panic, where there's a very real problem, a very real crisis, but the elites decide to respond by showing they're in charge 
and prioritizing staying in charge over actually collaborative, participative, accountable responses. So I think, for me, collapse is most likely to be experienced by people um, having their lives massively disrupted by panicking elites when they finally wake up to how how much trouble's coming down the line. As far as I understand it, one of the kind of the parts of the Sri Lankan problem uh, or the kind of crisis in Sri Lanka was due to the extraordinary arrogance and incompetence of the military government, which had been in place uh, largely as a function of its capacity to crush the Tamil rebellion that had taken place in Sri Lanka. And so there's a sense in which the kind of path dependency of a previous crisis in Sri Lankan society had generated a government that was incapable of responding to a new kind of crisis. And so in that sense, we have a problem of pathological kinds of governance. We should probably just spell this out. One of the reasons why fertilizer is so, of course, um, volatile as 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 an input into farming, even though, of course, as you just mentioned, the purpose of fertilizer is to, in some ways, smooth out the the, the volatility of the the return on farming uh, and to make it more guaranteed. Part of that volatility in the price of fertilizer is because fertilizer is made of oil, right? Or in large part made of oil. Natural gas is a big, big, yeah. Yeah, and so there's there's fossil fuel inputs, yeah. and therefore there's a great deal of volatility in that market, and therefore, although it's supposed to produce this kind of smoothing effect, this averaging effect, much like insurance is, uh, it nevertheless doesn't produce that uh, for 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 people. Perhaps what's happened with Sri Lanka is a warning about the counterproductiveness of eco authoritarian behaviours. Now, how much? How green were was the Sri Lankan government really? But they seem to be adopting this policy due to environmental concerns and how wrong-headed. So I think it's an important example that just because someone cares about the environment or says they do doesn't mean they've got good ideas on how to respond and, and act. And, act. Yeah. And, and just because they want to act swiftly... Uh, doesn't mean they'll do the right thing. And just because we criticize them for that doesn't mean we don't want to act swiftly. Mm. Um, We just may have other ideas about how to do it. So, yeah, my book, Breaking Together, is all about that. So it's a, I talk about an eco-libertarian agenda, which is the alternative to an eco-authoritarian agenda on on the environment in in what I call this, this new era of collapse that we're living in. Climate justice has often focused on the global south as a particularly intensely and particularly unjustly affected area when it comes to climate change damage. The speed of deep adaptation or the speed of climate change and climate change associated breakdown that deep adaptation poses seems to disturb or undercut some of that distinction between impacts in the global south which are normally framed in, in climate justice work as immediate uh, soon and uh, extremely intense as opposed to those in the global north so how does deep adaptation change the way in which we understand the geography of solidarity there's no one answer to that because some people will choose to interpret a, a reality and a concept about reality in a way which is just helps them feel better about themselves and do less so I admit that there are people who therefore think that their own lives are becoming more disrupted and going to break down, who then do not feel a compulsion or an invitation towards greater solidarity with people who are suffering more than them around the world. There are people who do react that way. However, there are also people 
who are very moved by their sense of vulnerability, the sense of mortality, the, an awareness of how bad climate change is, um, who are moved by that to be their better selves. And part of that is to be living in, in solidarity with those people who are suffering right now. Some people actually who were very focused on environmental progress become much more interested in just immediate humanitarian action. A good example of this, I think, is the Deep Adaptation Group in southern India, near Pondicherry, where prior to becoming the Deep Adaptation Group, they were very focused on their own resilience, their own environmental sustainable way of life. But the Deep Adaptation conversations got them to think, how do we wish to be as things start collapsing around us? So there was a lot more talk about their spirituality, their compassion, uh, their courage, and so because of those conversations and because they were actually aware of how things might break down when the COVID pandemic hit and therefore suddenly the government uh, banned movement um, and there was huge numbers of migrant workers who suddenly lost their employment and couldn't get back home who would basically starve. And so this deep adaptation group in southern India organized the money and, and stuff to actually then feed lots of these, these people who were stranded. They told me they felt that was that came from the deep adaptation group there because they'd had those kind of conversations about how do they wish to be when things become tough. Um, now, they obviously look to help people locally. Um, how are people in, say, Britain or Germany being moved into more active solidarity with people in the global south because of their sense of how things will be breaking down? Um, there are groups, there are initiatives, um, but it's a... I think it's a it's a quieter or weaker part of what I see as the deep adaptation community worldwide at the moment. So there are initiatives within the Deep Adaptation Forum for active solidarity with people who are on the sharp end, or or also people who are involved in sort of high intensity struggles with with corporations screwing up their environments. That there, there are projects, um, but I think there could be a lot more done. And I think that is also connects to another question about. At the moment, an explicitly political agenda for the collapse-aware people um, hasn't really been articulated, debated, refined, promoted, organized, executed. And I was expecting more of that, and it didn't happen, so that's also why I wrote this book, because I want to invite much more of a conversation about well, what is a what is a post-doom politics? What is yes. a collapse-expecting politics? or collapse witnessing politics. Um, and I have my own ideas on that. I welcome other people to have their own ideas on that. And um, so I think it's a, you put your finger on an important issue. I, I, I don't like some of the turning inward that can happen when people, yeah. when people think that collapse is coming or collapse is beginning. Some people can turn a bit inward and just, well, I'll just be nice to my family, my neighbors, and the, the bees in my garden. That's lovely. But, you know, you can expand. You talk geography of solidarity. You said, you know, where do you put the limits for your kindness and your lovingness? It's like, that's a choice and that's arbitrary and it's subjective. And okay, but you may make that choice and that's okay, but let's talk about it. Mm. <laughs> what assumptions are you making when you just decide to just look after your neighbors and no one else? That's really interesting. So one of the, and this idea that there's a, a particularly strong movement not in the global north for all deep adaptation, that, that's really exciting to hear. There's a kind of criticism of deep adaptation uh, that is often, I think, made that suggests that it's a sort of middle class run for the hills, um, forget about politics, exactly what you were just saying, this sort of inward facing or sort of retreat. You have a 
essay on escape ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's entitlement, and then S is for surety, C is for, let me get this right, control, A is autonomy, uh, P is for progress, progress, and E is exceptionalism. Yeah. Now, this is a really useful framework, I think, for understanding a particular kind of ideology that you situate yourself as having assumed for the, the whole of your life. And uh, I guess I would also situate myself in that. Can you just briefly explain what you think that, that framework does for us in understanding how to get into a more solidaristic, loving, kind way of uh, approaching politics? Yeah, I'm very proud of that chapter. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I feel like it was the culmination of uh, a deep reflection over a few years about how have I been constituted my identity, my sense of self, by the culture that I was born into mm. and grew up in. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, I, I call that culture imperial modernity. So it's a, it's a, an interlocking uh, set of systems, assumptions, ideas, norms, institutions, which basically uh, tell us that you can get on, you can do well, so long as you're basically putting more power up, in, up the hierarchy. Um, and and you've yeah the escape ideology is how all of that big system stuff then is manifested in our very sense of self, mm. our assumptions about the nature of who we are and the nature of reality. It was a chapter that had great resonance with the gesturing towards decolonial futures network, which is a consortium of scholars and activists from uh, North America and South America, involving lots of indigenous scholars. And so they, they liked it because it really helps people identify how deep the culture of modernity is in each and every one of us and how it limits how we can make sense of the current predicament and change our lives. Um, I'm really interested in the, this idea that this constitutes the sort of modern understanding of the world or the kind of the modern uh, frame for, for being. And I think that's, that's, that's almost certainly part of it. And I wondered if there's also something else we might say about that that modern way of being. Um, I think of the values that motivate my, my politics uh, as the kind of cosmopolitan modernism that I've kind of inherited in some ways. I think of those values as specifically constructed by modern institutions and the modern world. And that kind of solidarity that I think of myself as trying to live through as being itself a kind of modern construction. I think it's incompletely realized in the society we currently have, of course, and like much of the audience for Navarra, I think that the values we have now are dependent on a future kind of society, which has often gone under the name socialism. Deep adaptation severely undercuts that vision of the world, in part because it undoes the possibility of having this other kind of modern society, industrial modernity, a different kind of industrial modernity that is called socialism. And therefore it destroys this this future orientation and therefore in some ways it forces us to reckon with like the present as it actually is right now rather than this this kind of dis displacement or deferment to the future what's the ethical basis for that solidarity if not this future society in whose name we act yeah so uh, i think uh, the center left and the proper left uh have uh, intellectually missed a, an opportunity since 2015 when in so many societies of the world people either knew or intuited 
that their lives would be getting worse if they hadn't been already. And what the right-wing populists did was, while behind the scenes they kept being neoliberal, they started speaking very differently. They introduced a nostalgia politics, uh, take back control, make America great again, uh, re-elect the Dutertes, whatever. It's, just, it's around the world, this nostalgia politics. And so that's because the right wing just care about power and they don't give a shit about anything else. That's pretty much. So yeah. they'll just do whatever they need yeah. to win. <laughs> um, the left, uh, as you, you you described it very well, um, there's a story which is, well, so long as we work hard enough in organizing and get really better at winning elections, then once we're in charge, we'll fix everything and we'll get there. And there are different shades of that. So there's like the, the Corbyn story. I mean, I worked with him and I was involved in the 2017 general election and I really wanted what I thought would be some emergency socialism to help what I thought was coming. And then there's obviously more left than Corbyn and yep. all those ideas, proper, you know, totally root and branch transformation or, or eradication of capitalism as we know it. All of those stories, <clears throat> yes, there's a there's a there's a modernism, there's an ideology of progress, unquestioned, that humanity is progressing from the cave to the stars, uh, and that we're in control of nature and our destiny. There's um, there's a technological techno technotopianism often in that too. Um, so technology will deliver us to, to some better state forever. And um, I see all of that as uh, a form of delusion. I see all of it as also uh, reducing the, the, the human condition to something where what's called consequentialist ethics. So we do something because we have a very clear idea about how that's going to achieve something for certain. That's just not how humans are, and it's not how all the great wisdom traditions tell us what's great about being alive. We do things because of our values and because of what you talked about, being fully present to the moment. How do I feel? What's right and wrong right now? And so... So yeah, I think there's an opportunity for a new kind of left progressive politics. It's a, it's an oxymoron, perhaps a post-progress progressive politics, a post-doom progressive politics, which says, nope, we're, things are going to be getting worse, but there's still a lot to play for, uh, a lesser dystopia. Um, there's a lot to resist from the elite panic of authoritarians and capitalists. There's kind of like a global disaster capitalism now where... Um, it's okay for the public and politicians to be panicked because then they'll just give billions to direct carbon capture machines or uh, carbon sequestration stuff or pump more money into nuclear, whatever. There's, there's just using the fear to get more money from the state for corporate profits. So, um, so yeah, we need. There'll be. There's a hell of a lot to do from a. Uh, a, a position which starts with a critique of power and a critique of capitalism, a critique of money systems, a critique of corporations, and a critique of those establishment experts who are allergic to any sort of so-called radical alternative mm. agenda. Um, and I'm making my contribution to that debate through my book, Breaking Together. I'm, I'm offering some ideas on, on, on a, what I call sort of like people's environmentalism, this idea of a lesser lesser dystopia transforms the future from something to be achieved to something to be prevented. In some sense, we're trying to hold the future at bay, uh, whilst also, in another sense, trying to be kind of open to it and uh, open to the experience of that discomfort that it entails. 
Yeah, there's also something else, which is that the if we look at this came to me when I was at the launch of a report on the crises of inequality in Geneva by a UN agency I used to work for, and it was basically saying that inequality drives crises and is the result of economic systems and. And a woman who was in her early 20s put her hand up and said, yeah, we know all this, and we know that everyone's been saying all this for decades, and if someone like me decides to make this my framework and guide my career and whatever, then I'll just not succeed. Like, there are reasons, there are power structures why this is so, and so what's the point of just doing a new report on it? And for the first time I thought, wow, actually, my my analysis of the world strangely, provides an answer to that, which is that, yeah, yeah, people like you and me and everyone in this room, we've kind of lost. (laughs) And the good news is, because those that have won really have screwed everything up, it's all beginning to break down. And within that context of the systems of imperial modernity breaking down, so capitalist systems breaking down, and the state breaking down in its ability to to provide um, a safety net as well, there will be opportunities uh, for new forms of activism and action and community leadership, which will then add up to something also greater than just community uh, responses. So I talk about it as we'll be collapsing into community and what we can play for now is is what we're going to find there when that's all we have. And I also like to say that like legitimate, accountable democratic politics can't bypass the community level. Mm. And I think too much of the story of sort of left-wing salvation of society thinks that we bypass the community level. We can't. We have to, we have to build from the community level. I want to come back to this community uh, idea, but first just pick up on something that you mentioned there, which is that in some ways this is a fortunate development. And I wonder what work one you're you're trying to get nature to do there um some of my previous academic work was about far-right politics of nature what's called kind of eco-fascism sometimes i often wondered about the way in which they were trying to enlist nature as a sort of a an extra soldier in their in their kind of army and i wonder if in some ways deep adaptation is doing the same kind of thing in enlisting nature in as a sort of revolutionary agent or an agent of the critique of capitalism. And I wonder what the, if you think that's true, or and if so, do you think that's actually viable? Interesting. So deep adaptation is, a, is an ethos of sort of a, a caring and courageous, curious response to our predicament. And the way it's been used is as a framework of dialogue rather mm. than providing answers. So, and I, I'm quite happy for it to exist like that i've sort of living with that mindset and 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 heart heartful approach for a few mm. years i then ended up with what i now call an explicitly eco-libertarian response to this where i think that the systems of of corporations capitalism and the institutions of the state that prop that all up are illegitimate and yes the environmental and climate reality is proof that those systems are illegitimate because they are what drove such incredible biological annihilation, destabilization of the climate, 
which is posing a threat not just to civilization but even to the future viability of the human race at some point in the future. It's appalling. And it I don't see how if you take that all that data and analysis of what's going on on the planet and what the prospects are, if you don't take that to heart, how you can have any sense of respect or deference to the systems that produced that predicament. So yes, yeah. it is another, what did you call it? Another subject. It is another part of the critique. Yes. So it, it does in some, so climate change will do some of the work of taking us back in some ways to the kinds of communities that perhaps we should have been living in all along. Is that the claim? Oh, the should. Um, yeah, <laughs> the should is obviously troubling there. Um, but that's the question I'm asking. Yeah, so climate change is going to do lots of things. Society's breaking, becoming more disrupted and, and breaking down. It's going to do lots of things, um, bad as well as good. Uh, some people will become violent. Some people will have really nasty attitudes. There's this issue of worldview defense where some people will just double down on their views and their values in a completely illogical, irrational way. Um, some people will be unable to live with their fear and they'll just follow a leader who tells them what they want to hear and they'll tell them who to blame, who to hate, who to punish. That'll happen. But there'll also be amazing things as well. There'll be people who actually take this to heart and help bring them back to their 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 kinder, braver, loving selves um, the, who, who really want to just live their lives in contribution to others. So all, all aspects of being human will, will somehow sort of uh, be accentuated mm. through these more difficult times ahead. And there was something else you said, wasn't it, about uh, the community level? Like, would, is a smaller relocalized, like with local yeah. supply chains, rather? You know, uh, is that is that how we? Is that a more natural way of living? Mm. Uh, so yeah. yes, yes, it is. Absolutely, we we live in a hydrocarbon-based civilization. I think uh, the calculations are. Um, each one of us, um, on average, 8 billion humans on the planet, each one of us, on average, has 100 energy slaves in terms of the amount of energy, like the equivalent of uh, that you get from fossil fuels. Um, and obviously that's incredibly unequally distributed. Um, so, so, yeah, we are living in a way which is unnatural some people call it homo colossus we've created that we've become homo colossus not homo sapiens and uh there will be a powering down and therefore there will be a relocalizing uh i know the technotopians the silicon valley folks will love the tech bros will want to tell us that no we can all just have nuclear powered battery stored electric lives um, looking at it closely, as I do in chapter three of my book, that I don't, it's not possible. And I think it's convenient to them to promote that myth because once you realize it's not possible, the only legitimate way of powering down a society is if the rich go first, all of them. And they don't want us to realize that. <laughs> That's well put, very well put. Um, let's think a little bit more about community. Part of what you're advocating for there seems like it 
dovetails quite nicely with degrowth and the work around degrowth. I'm wondering what connection you think that degrowth has to deep adaptation. How do you see these two things as aligned, misaligned, uh, de-aligned and so on? Huge alignment. And so it's interesting because when I think of degrowth, I think of it as, a, as an academic field. I haven't met anyone who's doing cool community projects, land co-ops, um, energy co-ops. I haven't met any of them who like say, yeah, I'm so into degrowth. It, it really does seem a, an intellectual field for academics and policy wonks. And that's fine. That's good. I'm pleased that it exists and it's happening and those conversations are being had. Deep adaptation, it does exist in academia. I did a, uh, got a study commissioned and there were 300 peer-reviewed papers that mentioned deep adaptation. So, and in all kinds of areas, from architecture to psychology to all sorts. So it's, but, but it seems to be much more of a, a framework for normal people to just talk about, well, how are they going to cope with a different view of the future? How are they going to change their lives? What are they going to do next? So, so there's not much of a structured interaction between these two areas yet. So that I'd want to note that. As far as I'm aware, there may be someone doing a PhD or there may be some project where people are talking about the interaction, but I don't know about it. My view on degrowth is that it's not going to happen as a, as an, a democratically elected uh, political project. I, in highly unequal societies with crazy cost of living where suddenly people... It's well over half of all 30-year-olds in OECD countries are living with their parents. You know, it, it's, it's, it's some ridiculous number now. I mean, people's lives have changed where they're just not as one thought they would be. Um, you know, it's impossible to get on the property ladder as uh, anyone in their 20s, unless you just sign up to be a, a debt slave for the rest of your life. And it's just and get help from mummy and daddy. So uh, to then think in that context of people's lives already becoming shittier and also this climate anxiety, which is very justified, spreading, to then think that we're all just going to vote to have policies which will make effectively make our lives more expensive. That's mm. what it will be. There'll be uh, there are amazing ideas in the degrowth community about how we can actually benefit from relocalizing our lives, from turning to each other. To you know, I I I I, I am a doomster. I believe that that there is great joy in making our own music together and playing games and improv theatre together and growing our own food and even looking at how to create our local currencies and exchange systems. There's great joy to be had in that. But if you're struggling and going to a food bank. <laughs> it's it's a huge ask to then get people to vote for a, a policy agenda which says your heating bill is going to go up. Um, so you can't have you can't have a degrowth agenda without first wealth redistribution first and foremost. You can't. So that's really difficult to get across because. Corporate media and big tech, they're just not keen on those sorts of stories of massive wealth redistribution. So um, so that's why I just don't think we're likely to see a political platform succeed, because you not only have to get elected, then you have to push through uncomfortable policies and then cope with the backlash. So my, I talk about it in my book. I actually see that if you believe in a degrowth agenda for rich countries, then the way to get that is to promote a new wave of imperialist sentiment in the global south, so they adopt protectionist policies and therefore decide to export less and export less cheaply 
to the West. Because if you look at a country like Britain, what is it, about 60 to 80% of our food comes from elsewhere. I can't remember how much energy comes from elsewhere. You know, Britain can't, can't, Britain can't get through a, through a week without the rest of the world's resources coming in. And so if you want to see degrowth in Britain, then you need to have the rest of the world saying, mm, we, we want better terms of trade. We don't really want you to have all our resources so cheaply. And then within that context, suddenly there would be domestic demands for greater wealth redistribution of a shrinking pie in Britain. However, I don't see anyone in Britain standing up and saying, hey, everyone, let's promote anti-imperialism again in the, the global south. You know, let, let's, that, all that post-colonial stuff that was big in the 60s and 70s, let's try and revive it because actually we don't get a route to degrowth otherwise. I don't see that happening. Instead, I see the opposite happening. So if someone like a top think tank like Chatham House talks about the possibility of collapse, which they have begun to. They call it polycrisis. They'll put a report out which says, and this is really bad because if it's let to go, the doom spiral will lead to a rise in protectionism mm. and sort of disrupting globalization. It's like, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> and so I do wonder how much intellectual leadership on degrowth can actually come from... Um, well-educated, well-paid professionals from the global north. I don't mean, uh, I don't mean to be sort of churlish or rude, but it's difficult to talk like this because it's almost like you, you think, what, what does that mean for all your friends and family? You're talking about them all being forced to be nicer to each other with less resources, <laughs> and everyone wants like, well, no, we want to voluntarily do that. Um, so I'm not. I'm not going around the world trying to promote anti-imperialism, to promote protectionism, to force some degrowth on the West. I'm just doing something else. But I offer that in the book as, as a thought experiment. If you're really serious about getting degrowth to happen without thinking, oh, we'll just get some authoritarians in charge, you'll force the British public to accept this, which, which I'm totally against and I just don't think will succeed. I'm pleased it won't succeed then you've got to start thinking more broadly, more laterally. Mm. Um, and these are very uncomfortable conclusions. I have a kind of question about um, method. I think you said something extremely perceptive earlier, which is that, you know, as you pointed out, you know, we had coffee and then the ATMs are still working and blah, blah. And everything in Berlin, although it's a slightly kind of rickety city in some ways, seems to be sort of functioning. Funky rickety, though. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. <laughs> So in some ways, the, the, the process of collapse, we would expect to be hidden from us. And yet in your um, critique of frameworks that I'm remembering from the escape uh, ideology, you focus on the immediate sensation. And indeed, you mentioned in your critique of uh, typical socialist politics, the need to kind of focus on the world as it is around us. But it seems strikes me as sort of a strange contradiction here, because we should focus on the world around us. But as you also predict, the world around us seems normal. And so I'm kind of wondering how you get out of that trap of the kind of the blinkeredness without simply appealing to some other broader framework that then constructs a sort of critical view for you. Yeah, so the world around us seems normal on the surface, but also, okay, I'm, I've quit my job as a professor, but I've, um, to, to achieve my lifelong ambition 
that I didn't know about of being a third world farmer. But I that has completely changed my attitude to how much things cost. Suddenly it's worrying to like, oh God, look at how much everything costs. So I have been privileged. I have had a cushion. Um, many people can buy their way out of the discomforts of the early stages of societal breakdown. That's what's been happening. The people who we, the people who write columns in The Guardian, the people who appear on telly, um, the academics who work on climate change, we're all, we're all living in a, a bubble paid for by, by uh, decent salaries and the security of income. Um, the reality for so many people in, in, in now in the West is poverty and choices between heating and eating and um, people's parents skipping meals so they can feed their kids. So the things are breaking down and there's incredible sort of tolerance. I'm surprised um, at the levels of tolerance, but... Um, I think the stories, the excuses are going to run out. So in Britain, the excuse is, well, this is because of COVID and what we had to do with COVID. Or, oh, this is because of Putin and what he's done. And we have to do this, otherwise we'd be traitors to Ukraine. And and then, when are the excuses going to run out? <laughs> and, and when do people get to in such a bad situation where they don't care what your excuses are, they can't tolerate it anymore? So there are people who believe that we are entering a period which is prime for revolutionary change and that the impetus for that will come from normal people rather than people like you and me pontificating about things on podcasts. So there are people who are getting stuck in... Sorry, you may be doing lots of stuff with people, <laughs> the, but maybe I don't. I'm... I, I'm, I'm <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm really interested in in uh, actually it's a whole bunch of people involved who uh, were very involved in the Extinction Rebellion who are actually now becoming very involved. Well, also with people who were very involved with Momentum, the the the, the Corbyn supporting um, movement in Labour. Um, they're all getting together to actually work on helping people cope with the cost of living in ways that will build community resilience with a paradigm of of we are in a post-progress breaking down or collapsing uh, society. So they're trying to build those ties within communities for people to help each other, to provide for each other's needs, um, with no pretense that economic growth or the state will come to the rescue, the private sector through suddenly way more jobs, or the state with through way more spending is going to come to rescue. They're setting that aside, and they're bringing their critique and they're bringing their environmental concern, but it's a lot quieter. They're actually starting with how can we help people who can't, you know, afford anymore to even get to the to the hospital or who are walking hours to get to the food bank. They they they're starting at that level. Where's the greatest need? Who who in communities are working on that and how can we engage them and support them and actually bring this other consciousness of well how can we grow more food locally? How can we share energy? How can we um, encourage more uh, sharing of spaces, free cultural spaces where we we, we play games together, we 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 um, cook for each other, we play music together. That that it's that 
that's happening. And for me, uh, that's where I'm interested things might grow from. I have two more questions. The first one is about this idea of social collapse, which is not just a thing that looms in our future, but in some ways a thing that has happened throughout history. People often think about uh, the fall of Rome as sort of the quintessential social collapse, but I think there are at least a few that are that are more relevant to us. We are, as we mentioned before, sat here in Berlin, not a few kilometers here from here. Uh, there is East Berlin, which is a um, society that whose constitutive larger polity, East Germany and the Soviet Union, fell apart within living memory. There is also the demise not in living memory uh, and genocide in the uh, new world of the indigenous Americans. And sort of out of the ruins of these collapses, we find new um, societies being built. Uh, In some ways, the construction of the modern world is a feature of this uh, genocide uh, or a kind of a consequence of this genocide in in, in the Americas. Um, And I'm wondering how you think perhaps through this decolonial frame that you've referenced several times, we should think about those societies that have already collapsed such that our society could be born. How do we exist in solidarity through historical time as well? I've learned a lot from uh, indigenous wisdom and also indigenous scholars and also people who aren't indigenous but pay a lot of attention to what they're saying. Um... And of course, we're all indigenous since it's, it's, we've just been so badly disconnected in Europe from the ancient wisdoms that were closer to nature and the cycles of nature and the, the nature of reality, which is totally interconnected and not linear. <laughs> um, and where it's kind of obvious that everything is fully alive. So, so we've desacralized our understanding and experience of nature um, it's been desacralized for us. So um, my, why am I saying this? We can look to our own wisdom traditions in Europe, so pagans and others, and we can, and more mystical, green-tinged uh, Christianity as well. Um, yeah, we can, we can try and reconnect with our own place fully, um, our own humanness as animals within nature. I don't want to just just sort of reify um, wisdoms somewhere else in the world um, and exoticize this. Um, you know, we, we there's a tradition of intelligent, wise, spiritual women called witches. We we can look to that as much as we look to say shaman in in Guatemala. So I just want to say that first. The the um, existing in solidarity. Well, yes, absolutely. So um, we are about to see carnage caused in many of the pristine environments in the world by people who are eco-modern in the name of the transition to a sustainable world. Um, An academic paper beautifully called it Green Sacrifice Zones, where they looked at, well, where do all the rare earth metals exist in order for us to all have our battery-powered lives to, uh, in order... Um, to to maintain the myth that we can carry on as usual, uh, but somehow without fossil fuels. 
And so for me, net, the net zero, net zero story, where it means we just continue our lives, modern life, but somehow no longer dependent on fossil fuels, it's a myth, it's a lie. So, And to keep that going, then we, we're just going to have corporations digging up, mining, pristine environments, uh, poisoning poisoning lands, poisoning rivers, displacing peoples. It's just a whole new wave of green colonialism that's so-called green colonialism that's already happening and will be legitimized by this story of, well, we have to. You know, if we don't, then, you know, climate change will destroy us all. So I'm concerned about that. So part of the... Um, Solidarity response means environmentalists uh, realizing that they may not actually be on the same side. You know, you may fundamentally disagree with someone who has an eco modern view of the future and believes that you just have to sacrifice those lands and you need their rare earth metals and that's just the way it's going to be. And as an environmentalist, you will say, no, I believe you're deluded. You're believing a, a story which is just convenient to capital and, and the elites. Uh, we are going to have to change our society. We are not going to be able to depend on on a electric future. And um, I, I'm in resistance against you. Part of the other kind of way um, in which this might be played is through geoengineering. And geoengineering strikes me as uh, one aspect of a sort of unsympathetic collapse politics. So I'm assuming that the when geoengineering, when geoengineering happens, and I believe that almost certainly it will, um, it will be played and it will be understood and framed as a sort of response to collapse. So either we do this or society collapses. And then in some sense, there's a kind of adoption of the frame of uh, a social collapse there. How, what kinds of collapse politics should we expect to exist that we should be opposed to? Yeah, it's um, the the discussion of geoengineering over the last twenty years has been um, inadequate, and so there's um, there's just this one term, geoengineering, and many of us are very nervous or resistant to it. And um, and for me, any technology, um, whether it is a net benefit or not for society depends on the who's in charge of how technology is developed so um, the so many examples of that like the, the form of nuclear power that was commercialized was the one that was cheapest yet not the safest um, genetic engineering initially they, they were the researchers, 30 years ago we're looking at pest resistance but then Monsanto bought up these, geo, these these genetic engineering companies and said no let's make it resistance to round up the pesticide <laughs> uh, or let's create terminator seeds so that everyone has to come back to us to buy so it's always the the the, the commercial or nationalistic in some cases uh, or imperialistic incent incentives and desires which shape the deployment of technology so that's going to apply for geoengineering, there are forms of geoengineering which we should have been done or been doing already, and so I talked about it in, the, in 2018 in the deep adaptation paper. I argued for experimenting with marine cloud brightening in the Arctic to try and uh, prevent uh, 
what's happening now in the Arctic um, because of, you know, when the, the ice sheets are gone, then the sun's rays hit the dark ocean and that will warm up the ocean even more. And things, uh, it doesn't mean that I believe that marine cloud brightening will stop it. It doesn't mean that I believe we're necessarily in control anymore, but it's worth trying, even if it just buys us a decade, you know. <laughs> so um, I believe marine cloud brightening was useful to try because it it can be switched off. Um, but it's from a capitalist perspective, it's rubbish. You know, there's there's hardly any intellectual property to own. Um, you can't monopolize that. Um, you know, and we know that like the tech bro approach to anything is is where's the IP and how can I have a state sanctioned monopoly uh, and get and, and own everything and extract monopoly profits. That's They've even written books about it. Peter Thiel, zero to one. It's all about monopoly profits, IP and monopoly profits. So they're the kind. It's it's the that crowd that will have too much influence over these conversations of what to do with geoengineering. So we do need a we do need a civil society movement, in, critically informed uh, on. Uh, kind of like explicitly anti-corporate, anti-capitalist geoengineering forum to say, well, what would actually be most accountable, most appropriate, most safe, most switch-offable? Um, so I'm dead against ideas of, you know, putting sulfur, whatever it's sulfur, all sorts of things into, the, atmos dioxide, yeah. Yeah, into the atmosphere. Um, and again, there'll be a backlash, won't there? Because uh, there'll be some science that will show, well, this is likely to disrupt the intercon, uh, the, the the rains in in West Africa or the monsoon in India, and then we'll see war. Yeah, part of my understanding of the stakes, specifically the Arctic, is that it also the decrease in the Arctic ice shelf allows for greater oil exploration in that region where there is quite a lot of oil as well. And so there's a kind of a perverse feedback loop in which the decline of the Arctic is actually beneficial for oil exploration. Mm. Um, What's your view on geoengineering? Are you allowed to say what you think on your podcast? Uh, <laughs> I'm discouraged from doing so. Uh, <laughs> okay. by myself, but I, I can uh, tell you afterwards. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not adverse to it. I think things like uh, enhanced weathering and so on uh, seem like... Of rocks, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely plausible yeah. aspect of that. I don't know enough about marine cloud writing to know. Um, things like kelp farming, which I mean sometimes go under that name. Yeah. Obviously things like rewilding have their own kind of uh, their own kind of place if done uh, equitably and so on. So I think that there are definitely... I'm not adverse to big so scale design. So the, the solar radiation management part of geoengineering has been uh, put to one side in mainstream environmentalism. Yes. So I'm focusing on that because that's more of the emergency response. Yes. So kelp farming, awesome. And, you know, rewilding, carbon sequestration that way, naturally, great. Agroforestry, super. Um, reforesting in a fair and sustainable way, yeah, great. But the solar radiation management needs to be talked about. I'm quite supportive of Ye Tao's work on the mere reflection initiative because he's very focused on, well, how can we help people living in uh, huge metropolises in the global south who are going to be suffering heat death potentially um, even more in the next few years and how can we help them make their cities cooler? Yeah, so it's localised solar radiation management. Great. He should be getting shitloads of money to do that because, right. because terrible heat's coming and the poor may not have air conditioning. Mm. So You have recently moved to Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the initiative you started there and how it fits in with your vision of uh, a kind of return to community. 
Yeah, so I am... Um, part of me really w wants to use my gifts, skills, networks in a responsible way and share my analysis and my truth through uh, education, through advocacy, through book writing, showing up on a podcast, having a chat intelligently, I hope. But there's another part of me which is fed up with all of that and I just want to live my own truth. I almost feel like a fraud if I'm just living an urban lifestyle uh, and, and living in Britain or anywhere actually in Europe, I simply could not afford to do what I wanted to do, which is what I'm doing in Indonesia now. I've bought a 15-year lease on 3,000 square meters to launch a permaculture farm school. Um, and I don't go around talking about, hey, we're getting you guys ready for collapse. Um, we just talk about why it's good not to poison your children because, you know, all these small holdings, they, all, everyone lives where they're farming. And also talk about how they can get um, a better revenue in the market. They can sell to the organic shops and companies. And, um, and also they're very into spirituality in Bali, where I'm living, and so it's also more in, in accordance with traditional values and respect for nature. But I'm doing it, and the people I'm doing it with are doing it because we also want to try and help create more resilient agriculture and resilient economic systems so that when things break down more, when I mean, I mean the banking system, currencies, international banking global supply chains, um, that things won't fall apart locally. I, if I was very rich, would have done that either in Britain or somewhere in Europe, but I'm not, and I didn't want to spend ages trying to persuade rich people or a foundation to trust me with their money. I'm just pissed off with that way of being, and I just, I just move and get on with it. So the whole thing's costing me about £40,000, I've put in, and that includes the staff and the cost of the land and the, all the infrastructure, and then we just have to hope it works because we need to make a little bit of money to pay everyone um, so that we can yeah expand it. And, and the vision is to convert dozens of local smallholders to organic and then create a network, a business association, and create an exchange system and ultimately a currency uh, between us and then with others in the in the neighbourhood who want to participate and uh, and then showcase this, teach people about doing this, and in that way find your way to a post doom progressivism or a post doom uh, progressive politics. Yeah, I want to have I want to have a bit of fun doing it. I'm not pretending. So politics in Indonesia could change overnight and kick me out. Uh, local politics could suddenly decide that they don't like these ideas and they believe that it's uh, much better to douse everything with chemicals and kick me out. Um, suddenly El Nino could cause there to be um, such disruption uh, to the environment in Indonesia that that has direct and indirect knock-on effects which makes life difficult. Um, and ruins my project. I'm not. I'm not lying to myself there. But so the reason I'm doing it because it feels right and it feels like I'm living my values, and I I feel like doing something more hands on, more earthy, more physical than sitting in front of a laptop analyzing 
all the latest data sets on how everything's falling apart. So I'm pleased that there are other people who'll stay being intellectual and academic. <laughs> I hope they read my book because it did a lot of work. It was like a two and a half year project to to pull it together. Breaking together. I was, gonna, I was just going to say that. You've done it for me. John Bethel, thank you so much for coming on Navarro FM. Cheers. Thank you. We're up against obscene wealth and influence in the media, and it's hard out there for independent platforms trying to do things differently. So if you can, please consider donating one hour of your wage per month or whatever you can afford so that we can bring you even more of the kinds of podcasts, videos, and political analysis that you won't find anywhere else. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you.